I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Knight. And this is Playing Playing With Science. Science. Yes, today is a Cosmic Queries tennis show where we open the floor to our Star Talk Playing With Science family and let them pose the question. So if you ever wondered why your balls spin and why, you must always keep them fuzzy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd like that. Come on now. You know I can't. Do, I'm just going to go with it. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to continue. And if you have any interest in a new spin on a never-ending string theory, you are in the right place because our good friend, Professor Eric Goff from Lynchburg College, Virginia, and author of Gold Medal Physics, is the man to unlock the answers to your questions. Now, let's get back to some fuzzy balls that spin... So, so, Eric, good to have you back. How have you been, sir? I'm doing great. It's good to be back. How are you, Gary and Chuck? We All are right, fabulous, yes. Good to hear um, you. So, hey, what have you been up to? Well, our classes begin in a week, so I've got about three more days before I need to start preparing for them. And uh, <laughs> It's good to see that those uh, kids are getting a quality education as you last-minute their curriculum, uh, Professor. No. <laughs> well, i get all the research done before the classes start. Okay, so. I got you. Hey, by yep. the way, um, now that the uh, Tour de France is over, uh, for those who know that you are the person who does the modeling, how did you end up ultimately? Oh, we did a really fabulous job this year. Um, our last stage, we missed by just 11 seconds. So uh, wow. we had a fantastic uh, prediction set. Uh, 15 of our stages, we did better than 4%. Uh, 11 of them, we did better than 2%. Wow. So we had good predictions this year. And you nailed Chris Froome from the start anyway. Uh, we had... Yeah, I mean, I kind of figured Chris Froome was going to be the, the guy to beat, and no one could, could beat him, so he got yeah. his fourth. Can't touch this. Yeah. And All by right. the way, before we go any further, so yeah. that, how many does that make for Chris Froome, guys? Three in four. That's three in four? Yeah. Um, uh, well, he's it's his uh, fourth total, but third in a row, right? Third yeah. in a row, but fourth yeah. total. Okay, cool. And how many more before we say he's better than uh, Lance Armstrong, just as a, just as a uh, point of interest? Well, Lance is officially 1-0, right? <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that hurt. Ooh, Ooh professor. Below Ooh. the belt blow from the professor. I love it. Right. Hey, well, let's get into our... All right, let's get our first question. question. Mark Miller from Halifax, Nova Scotia on Patreon. This is how you pose a question to get it on Playing With Science. Love the show, says Mark. <laughs> so I read that the fuzz... on the felt cover of a tennis ball helps control its speed and bounce. Would the fuzz itself have an effect on the effects of spin? We see more amazing curved shots. So, Professor, I'm going to knock that over the net. It's all yours. So, the fuzz actually increases the cross-sectional area of the ball going through the air. So, uh, you get a little bit more area than if it didn't have fuzz. You get a little bit more air drag on it. So, it will slow the ball down a little bit. Uh, As for the spin, the fuzz actually does help with the spin, but mostly uh, for low spin balls. Uh, When you start getting up to high speeds and high spin, uh, the fuzz tends to lay down on the ball's surface a little bit more and you don't notice it quite as much when you get really high spins and really high speeds. So, um, when you, so let's say you take the fuzz off of the ball. How much would it change the game? 
Well, you're going to notice that more uh, for the low spin, low speed shots, uh, you're going to get a little bit less of a curve. Uh, you're also going to get a little bit less uh, of, a, of a bounce off the ground if you have the fuzz on there because you get a little bit more friction. <laughs> so you get uh, less of a bounce with with. With the fuzz. With yeah. the and, fuzz, and, gotcha. And if you take the fuzz off, you're going to reduce the air drag a little bit, so the balls are going to be moving a little bit faster. Gotcha. So this touches on a question from James Arnold from Facebook. Uh, it says, why is tennis played with fuzz, fuzzy, bouncy balls, which you've already addressed? Is the fuzz important? Yeah, we've touched on that one. Or could it be shaved down? Now, Chuck, I thought you'd be all over this because this well, is in your ballpark, as it were. No, but, I mean, seriously. I First of all, I am not about shaving the fuzz from the balls because uh, the way I feel is though it's, um, it gives the balls a, a juvenile look and I for one like mature looking balls well, that does add an extra wrinkle to the problem, doesn't it? It certainly <laughs> do does. Do not encourage him, Professor, <laughs> please. We've got a long way to go in this show. What's the sort of coefficient of, of drag and all the rest of it that this fuzziness brings to a tennis well, ball? When you put fuzz on a tennis ball, what it's actually doing is it kind of thickens the uh, – boundary layer of air that's around the ball and the flow of the air around the ball looks a little bit more what we call laminar than it does turbulent say that again so, yeah. now can you explain those two things i missed that so for low speeds the uh, air separates behind the ball uh kind of at a big wake uh, when you go a lot faster the air gets wrapped around the ball a little bit tighter okay. and the so-called drag coefficient drops that was the the drag crisis we've talked about on an earlier show yes uh, you've started again professor I'm so the, the fuzz actually will will thicken that boundary layer and move that drag crisis to a higher speed so you actually get a little bit more uh on the drag coefficient a little bit more area so there's there's actually considerably more drag on the ball with the fuzz than if you didn't have any of it on there so it's just kind of the opposite of like a boat in a lake hmm. like the well, faster you, the boat goes the the bigger the wake is so you're saying the faster this ball spins and goes through the air with the fuzz the smaller the wake behind it well, with, with the fuzz, you actually get a bigger wake. Oh, uh, I see what you're saying. When you, when you cross that drag crisis into the turbulent regime, the, the wake would actually kind of wrap more around the back of the boat into a, like a narrower wake. Gotcha. gotcha. What, what's interesting is we've seen this type of tennis ball for I can't remember how long. And you're just wondering, the people who introduced this type of tennis ball into the sport, do you think they would have been all over the physics of it and thinking, right, this is how we progress the game? I don't know the, the actual history. I mean, I know with golf balls, they, they started with smooth balls, and then the aristocracy noticed that when the bourgeoisie were playing with the used balls that they were discarding, uh, they were going farther. So, right. yes, of course, yes. now we... We dimp all the ball, so I, I imagine there was some trial and error involved. I mean, Absolutely. If, if you remove the fuzz, I mean, how fast do you want the game to be? I mean, how how few uh, hits do you need in a volley for it to be good tennis? Just how fast a serve would you have on a completely clean well, surface? Well, that's funny field? because um, uh, 33 Kyleford from Instagram asked this question. How fast does the ball have to spin for the spin to affect the trajectory? So um, it, at what point does the ball have to speed up so that the spin can uh, 
create a different or create movement? Well, so the, I mean, any type of spin is going to give it a little bit of a sideways movement. You're always going to have a little bit of this Magnus force for uh, even small spin. The, the typical angular speed you see on a tennis ball tend to be somewhere between about 16 revolutions per second and 80 revolutions per second. Uh, if you like thinking about RPMs, that's somewhere between 1,000 and 5,000 revolutions per minute. Wow, so, not bad. When they're when you're getting a serve well in excess of 120 miles an hour with a lot of top spin, I mean these things are really spinning, and what the spin actually does, the top spin for a serve, it'll increase the available range to something like two and a half to four degrees, and that gives the player a little bit more room for error when you're aiming for like the sideline or the sorry the center line or the back corner for a serve. Mm -hmm. So, and, so, so and I was going to go, go, ahead, go ahead, professor. Keep, yeah. keep, keep going, professor. Well, the, another nice thing about the spin is that when it hits the ground, uh, the ball is spinning. And if I could show you, I, I would. But when the ball is turning and it hits the ground, the ground imparts a significant amount of friction on it, and it can actually kick the spin up. It can double the spin. Uh, so you get a lot more spin off the bounce, and that can play havoc with some uh, inexperienced players. Absolutely. Now, can you just, I mean, because now that you've opened this up, I, I really just am asking for myself, can you explain, because that seems counterintuitive, the fact that the ball hits the ground, you would think that that would slow the spin down, that, in fact, you use the term friction. Normally, whenever we think of friction, we think of something being slowed down. It goes into retro. It right. goes into retro. Yeah. So how exactly does it kick the spin up? It's very well, interesting. Well, try to imagine a ball coming into a surface at an angle, and it has no spin. When it hits the surface the ball and the surface are going to rub against each other and you're going to have a frictional force in the opposite direction of the way the ball's moving. So the ball will actually leave the surface with spin. And you can do this with a, if you ever have a super ball, yeah. just take it and spin it and drop it straight down and you'll watch it kind of, it'll look like it's walking back and forth with each new bounce as the spin changes direction. You're right. You're so, absolutely, so, oh, that's great. Okay, so we've got. This, I love how like I a, just told him he's right. Like he's not a professor of physics. You know, I'm just. I like, saw hey. it more as an agreement. Yeah, I'm like, hey, you know what? You're right. Like I approve. So if you can imagine uh, an Nadal serve that comes in at the sort of pace we're talking about, 100 mile an hour plus, but because he imparts so much topspin, it dives once it clears the net, and then when it sort of hits the hits the court surface and then kicks up, I've now got to return that. But I want to return the favor, as it were, with my own topspin. So how and what forces am I going to need to use to return that serve from Nadal at that sort of speed? And how do we go about that? So the ball will be spinning in the opposite direction you want it to spin if you want to return it with topspin. So you're going to have to sli you know, slice your racket up the back of the ball to you know, arrest the spin that Nadal gave it and then give it your own top so spin. So I've got on the to impart back. more force and top spin than what he has served Holy up for me. Man. Well, keep in mind the speed of the ball when it hits the court on the opponent's side, it's about three quarters of the speed from which it was hit off the racket. Uh -huh. The, the, interaction with the ground is going to take another quarter of that speed off. So it's only going about half as fast when it reaches the player 
from the serve. So you have gotten a little bit of a benefit from the, the air resistance, slowing the ball down, the impact with the court. So you're not exactly hitting a 120 mile an hour ball when it, when it gets to you from Nadal's racket. <laughs> All right. So that's interesting. There's hope for me yet when I play him. <laughs> nice. I got my money on you. Oh, you're all hot. Yes, but they will be pesos mm-hmm. or rubles. Yeah, um, just, lucky. just keep keep him off of clay, and you may have a chance. <laughs> sure. All right. So, official Sam Karani wants to know this from Instagram. Hey, it's Sam from Chicago. Hi, Sam. Hey, Sam. Hey, How Sam. much torque is applied to a tennis ball when it is hit with slice? Ooh. So slice can actually, you know, get the, I mean, you see Roger Federer doing this a lot. You can get up to 4,000 RPMs or so with a really good slice shot. The collision time the ball spins on the racket, it's only in the four to five millisecond range. Wow. So if we're, if we're just calculating an average torque, um, you're, only, you're getting about two and a half foot pounds of torque, uh, which may not sound a lot when you think about exerting two and a half pounds uh, at a foot's distance. But keep in mind, uh, the ball is a lot smaller and the time at which that's acting is, uh, is, is small. So you've got a much smaller lever arm, a much larger force on the ball. Generally, when you slice, you take an awful lot of pace out of yeah. that ball, and it just whoa, just yeah. floats well, over and, and the and net. A, a lot of times, a slice is because um, it's like you're recovering. It's mm. a recovery shot, you know. It's, well, it's a, a, sometimes it's if you're close to the net, it's a really smart killer shot. That's true because uh, it, it it takes it it takes the. Does the slice slow the ball down? Because that's what it looks like when these guys yeah. are playing. It looks like the slice slows the ball down, and a lot of times it ends up looking like a drop shot, and you see the other player rushing towards the net to, to try and, and pick up well, the let's shot. ask the professor. Yeah. Is Does it slow it down? Slow so if you're down? giving – if you serve it with top spin, you can get an added bounce uh, on, say, a hard court uh, or clay. Grass, it'll not have that quite as good a jump off the court. But – if you've got backspin on it, then you're really going to deaden the ball when it hits the, the court. Ah. Uh, the friction's going to really deaden the, the jump off the court. Gotcha. All right, next gotcha. question. I think it's Tyler Mene. If not, it's Tyler Men uh, on Facebook. And this is kind of like the, the barroom question. How fast must a tennis ball be traveling at minimum to go through a racket? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so he's, It's one of those, who's, who's going to get there at the end, Michael Phelps or the Sharp? Right. It's so one it, of those kind of yeah. questions. Like, so if you're playing with a cyborg yeah. and, he, uh, and he hits, first of all, if he hits the ball to you hmm. hard enough to go through your racket, that means it should have gone through his racket. Well, of course, it depends on if you're swinging your racket when the ball comes. I mean... <sighs> Uh, if, if, if he's hitting a stationary ball hard enough to get it up to the speed to break your racket, uh, are you going to hold your racket still or are you going to try to hit the ball? So uh, if you try to hit the ball, the effect is going to be even uh, greater and you don't need quite the speed. Gotcha. Uh, so I don't know if the questioner means, uh, if Tyler means that the the racket is stationary and... All right, let's go with... Let's let's, go with playing a shot. Let's go with playing a shot, okay? So here's the thing. Let's go with a regular human being 
serves like a Rafael Nadal, okay? Serves the ball. I'm not sure Rafael's going to be happy with you calling him regular. That, I got to tell you, you know what? He may not be, you know, but it's cool. He'll get over it. I know. I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, let's say that uh, Nadal serves, right? And then our cyborg comes and hits the ball in a regular swinging motion. How hard would that ball have to, uh, how hard would he have to swing? To, to get the ball to go through the actual strings, or even to get stuck in the strings. Now let's go. Well, you, no, stop. Let's yeah, go through. Forget it. But just blast through. Yeah. If you put the ball on the net, uh, you're getting something like let's say about seven strings in each direction uh, that are going to be really in contact with the ball. And if you look up some of the tensile strengths for the strings that are used, uh, they might be around 140 pounds or something. So in other words, you could hang that much weight from a string before it starts to stretch and break. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take those 14 strings and assume they all had 140 pounds, uh, you're getting near a ton of force, uh, nearly 2,000 pounds. But of course, that's not quite how it works because the center strings are going to assume a lot more of that force than the ones near the side of the ball. Um, I think you're going to need something in the 150 to 200 mile an hour range for the ball before you're actually going to snap the string. Gotcha. We're, so on, our, we're on our way to that. Yeah, yeah i got to tell you something. The way the game is going, who knows? Uh, but so, that's, so you would have to get up somewhere around 200 miles an hour. What would it take for the ball itself – can the, to, to not be able to withstand that. Do you have any information well, the, on the that? I think the ball can take a lot more force. I mean, I've seen you know videos of people putting balls in, in various compression devices where you get you know 10,000 pounds or some crazy amount of yeah. uh, force that's, on the ball before they marriage. break. That's That's called marriage, yeah. 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 <laughs> but, I mean, I, that it's could cost not, you. <laughs> it's not something you're going to easily be able to do by putting it in your hand and breaking it. Uh, despite what you see in some movies. <laughs> okay. All right, here's a question I like. Uh, Matt Moose on Facebook. Why do tennis balls come in a vacuum-sealed can? Interesting oh, yeah, question. That, that, so to keep yeah, them you, fresh? What is this? You typically get That's a That's why they're a so can. delicious. Ugh. Yeah, you get about, what, three of these balls in a can? Yes. Kind of like a Pringle-sized can. And you, you open the, the top, and you got this pull tab, and... Uh, the reason is, is the rubber that's making the outside of this tennis ball is very, very slightly permeable to air. And what that means is, is that the air inside the ball under normal atmospheric conditions is going to start leaking out. Uh, and if you were to just leave these balls in an unpressurized can like that, uh, sitting on a short store shelf for months, you open up the can and the balls are going to have lost a lot of their internal pressure, gotcha. basically getting to atmospheric. So uh, you have a dead ball at that case. Oh, okay. Matt Moose, you just got us taken to school. Yeah, man. Because I was, never knew that. That's a cool question. A and of course, question. the professor gave us the yeah. most fabulous answer. We will take our first break. Mm -hmm. um, when we come back, more of your cosmic query questions about tennis, balls fuzzy, balls spinning, and Chuck's marriage breakup. Hopefully not. Uh, we'll be back shortly. Ball's got to breathe. Welcome back. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing With, with science. science. We've already looked at the balls, the spin, and the freshness of a three-pack. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now it's time to take a look at the rackets themselves, which have plenty 
of interest, particularly when it comes to friction. I'm going to stick on this point and it's going to milk it and, of course, the power they impart to a tennis ball. So, Chuck, our next question. But first, reintroduce our guest today. Yes, uh, of course, he is Professor Eric Goff from Lynchburg College in Virginia and the author of Gold Medal Physics. Um, the Professor, Science of Sports, the science which of I sports. can recommend is a fabulous, fabulous read. Oh, I've just seen our next question. Yes, and he is Chris our- Ryu from the Atom Club in Sturminster Newton in the England. United Kingdom. Do you yes. know where that is? Yes, it's in the it's county. In Dorset, isn't it? it? You see? Oh, wow, look at you guys. This is why he is a professor, because he knows stuff All right. like that. So where's Dorset? Okay, Dorset Very is south. <laughs> southwest England. So you go, if you think on the south of England, so you go Kent, Sussex, Hampshire, Dorset, okay. Devon, Cornwall. So that's way, With the way so Dorset's pretty way far there. south. Though. I mean, Dorset is one of the most prettiest places in England, or Britain for that matter. Really? However... The Atom Club. I'm just thinking there's a nearby town called Blanford Forum. And I'm just wondering if there's a rival club called the Up and Atom Club. Because this just this <laughs> creates this little rivalry. But anyway, enough of my ramblings about <gasps> teary-eyed England. Is there any evidence that grunting, like you're giving birth to a pineapple, helps generate extra power in your swing? Why on earth you went to pineapple, I suppose I know really. Well, yeah. Professor, all yours. <laughs> Wow, giving birth to a pineapple, that really takes me back to a South Park episode with Paris Hilton. But uh, uh, That's maybe think- where it generates from. Hmm. What I'm thinking now is um, the grunting. You think of, you know, like Monica Salas and other players who've done that. Right. Um, the, the coaches, some of the coaches will teach that grunting is a way to uh, kind of time the release of the energy with, in the body with when you hit. Uh, the, the analogy I like is that, you know, in karate, we use kia, you know, and in Krav Maga class, uh, Krav Maga physics is the subject of my next book. We use Good oish. Plug. Good oish. plug, Professor. Well done. Right. When, when you punch something and you yeah. say oish, uh, right. th- there's a negative uh, to this, of course, uh, although it could be positive from the point of view of the person who's grunting, which is it messes with your opponent. Uh, they don't right. like to hear the grunting. <laughs> it's a distraction. Sure. Yes, that's much right. the opponent yeah. as the fans themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you, too, that uh, when you sit in the stadium, uh, it's a distraction as a fan. I'm sorry, you know, because it's it, it's a little much when you listen to some of these players get into it. It's just like, ah! 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 you know, it's very. Uh, I'm, that's really I, actually quite accurate. Yeah, I got to tell you, it's, <laughs> it, it can be a little like if you let your mind wander. I'm just saying. Which obviously you have. Yeah, you might forget that you're at a so tennis So you tuned match. out the tennis and you went somewhere. You, I'm he, just, went to, he went to birthing a pineapple. Um, yeah, they, just, yeah. It's, it's a little, uh, it can be disturbing and distracting. I'm Sounds just like saying. a really bad allergy you've got there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've lost Chuck for a couple of minutes. I'll continue and sail on my own. Um, all right, here we go, Professor. Give him his full name, Mark Eric Svensson. And it's questions from Facebook. For obvious reasons, tennis serves and hits are faster with longer rackets. But at what point would the racket be too long and the extra torque required would provide diminishing returns? So we've already had the larger head rackets. Mm-hmm. So now it's gonna, you're going to turn up with a Monty Python-esque giant 
tennis racket. Yeah, or, where, where so you the play question the game is, from the stands. Yeah. So what's the limit? Where, where, just how well, far think, shouldn't we go? Yeah. Well, the the ITF, the uh, International T- Tennis Federation rules, set the limit at 29 inches. Um, typically, players are in the 27 to 27 and a half inch range. Um, so that these rackets are about nine to 14 ounces, uh, you know, so nearly a pound. I mean, the problem is of course, if you, if you were to make it too long, now you're making the racket heavier. Uh, so you are going to be able to get more torque on it, but it's also going to cost you more energy to swing your racket. (laughs) So you're going to get tired faster. So someone like John Isner, who's what, six foot? Eight, six foot nine. Holy crap. Could you imagine giving him a regular sized tennis racket? It would look like a table tennis paddle. So he is going to have a naturally longer racket because he's got these naturally longer levers. So there must be some room for the bigger, taller players to be able to have longer rackets. Well, I mean, you know, taller players often have an advantage in a lot of sports. Right. I mean, you say mm. old is tall, you get Randy Johnson throwing off of a pitching mound. Uh, you know, I mean, basketball players, obviously. So, you know, that, that added ability to increase torque with your just natural height or arm length uh, and you, one and of your gifts. And you cover more of the court just because you're a natural tall. It's like a basketball player. You've got that wingspan. Right. So, you know, you're not having to shuttle across the baseline so much to get to a a shot that's in the corner. You just reach out that wing and pop, there it goes, back again, just arm strength. So is there a place where it can be too long? Because he talks about diminishing returns here. Mm. Uh, Is there a point where the uh, length of the racket uh, actually is a detriment well, again, it, it depends on the player. I mean, if, you, if you're an amateur, you don't want to be using an, a, you know, the piece of equipment that's a little too big for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're swinging something with more mass because it's longer, there's an energy cost to that. It, it, you know, every time you swing that rack, it's going to consume calories in your body. So you're going to have to take that into account. You know, if you're going to be playing a five-set match over several hours. <laughs> Gotcha. That's interesting. Gotcha. That's a whole nother different type of science then because it's conditioning, fitness, and muscle strength. All right. Um, moving on to our next question. Samet Sina from Facebook in Barrington, Illinois. Many players choose to use shock absorber on their strings. They range in the size and shape, but all seem to function similarly. How are these small rubber-esque pieces able to reduce the shock? felt while hitting the ball um and it goes on to ask are there any performance benefits to using one aside from mere player preference so first of all you're going to have to explain what is a shock absorber is that the little rubber grommets that yeah. actually so house the string at the uh at the rim of the racket so in on a racket on the racket head you will have a sweet spot then you'll have a point of percussion and somewhere along the line and then sort of the the balance and everything, but let the professor explain rather than me because he is the professor and obviously I am not. So if if, if you put some mass on the racket, you know, just little bead or anything, just any kind of mass on a string, if it's vibrating and you've put mass on it, then the vibration is going to dampen much faster. There's more inertia. There's more mass you're trying to swing back and forth. But the, the, what the shock absorbers or those little grommets really do is they, get rid of the ping. So when you hit the tennis 
ball with the racket, the string vibrations are kind of in the 500 to 600 hertz range. So we can hear those as like a ping. Um, if you put the little grommet on there, the little shock absorber, that tends to deaden the hit and it sounds more like a thud. But it's not going to help you with the vibrational energy in the racket because most of that's actually in the frame. Mm-hmm. Ah. And the reason is the frame is about 20 times more massive than the strings. So what's really dampening out the energy in the racket is your hand. It's, it's not the, – the little grommets are more for the sound than anything else. Will it's not the, really going to save your hand much. Will those little uh, shock absorbers affect the sweet spot? I know the size of the racket head has increased the size of the sweet spot, and players love that. But does it have any effect in that sense? Or is almost it just none. The, <laughs> that much? Yeah, almost. Uh, <laughs> almost uh, you, you don't get a real change in where the sweet spot is. So that. then, really, the uh, to to dampen the uh, vibration of the racket during uh, these you know high intensity collisions with the ball, you you really would have to have some kind of material uh, like a tempered foam or something like that on the grip. Or, or what would you do to 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 reduce that? Is really what I'm asking. I'm so if you hit it in the I mean, they're, they're technically uh, two sweet spots. Uh, I mean, there's a vibrational node, and then a little bit closer to the throat is the center of percussion. Now, one of the vibration node is where if you hit the ball there, you don't get any vibrations. You get a little bit of a shock in the hand if you hit at the center of percussion. Um, and they're not too far apart, so these, are, these spots are very close together. Um, but you get a small vibration and if you hit at the center of percussion, but you don't get any shock in the hand. So it, it, that big, you know, spot in the middle, the racket where you're trying to hit the ball is going to keep the vibrations low on the hand. If it, now the power point is much closer to the throat, more of the center of the racket. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of down on the strings away from the tip in the, in the throat of the, the string bed. Now that'll have significant vibrations. You're really going to feel that even if you get a lot more power from your shot. <laughs> wow. And so are players cognizant of this when you're a professional player? Are you actually looking at a ball and making the mental calculation, even though this ball may be coming at you at a hundred plus miles per hour, are you actually making an, a hand-eye um, assessment where you're trying to get this ball directly in the middle of this racket so that you can get this sweet spot. Oh, I'm sure they have an intuitive physics of where they want to hit the ball on that racket. I mean, th- this is a piece of equipment that's in their hand for, you know, hours a day practicing for years and years. So, hmm. I mean, they have a very, very good feel for <laughs> where that ball is going to hit the racket when if, they're swinging if it. If I relate that to my playing days in soccer, you know that to execute a certain pass, a certain shot requires a certain skill now if it's a cross-court volley if it's a slice if it's a top spin return and i need to place that ball directly in the tram lines on that far side if i'm playing doubles or just in that corner because now two shots later i'm going to kill my opponent i have to be able to dial up a certain series of shots and the techniques that are in there that I will have, as the professor says, I have had this racket in my hand hour after hour after hour, week, month, year after year. Mm-hmm. I'll just be thinking this one pop. And I won't be thinking about it. The calculation through my brain, to my body, through history right. is there. And that's what you're seeing. So These it's a, pro- guys it's are a so programmed, practiced. it's a programmed reaction yeah. is what it is through, through um, and then, experience. Then I get to the point where, my opponent knows I'm going to dial up this shot. Right. 
So I just throw the eyes. Right. So I'm now looking at that far corner and then I'll just cut it to the other side right. and he will follow my eyes. Or right, because he's anticipating uh, what you're absolutely. anticipating. Absolutely. So now, yeah. now you get to the real genius. Exactly. These guys are calculating that you're calculating and yeah. calculating against your calculation and it just gets better and better and better. And you know what? What you just said there is such a fascinating part of so many professional sports and that, and that is when you talk about watching the eyes and so when and, and in tennis it's like when you see a cross-court cross court shot mm. and then you see the return which should be back across the court. Yeah. But... It goes straight down the line, and it, and you see the, the the guy who made the cross goes just like, damn, he got me. Yeah, he totally got me. And the same thing in football, where you hear linebackers talk about watching the quarterback's eyes. Oh yeah, like how good do you have to be to be on a level where you're playing this sport and reading somebody's eyes at the same? I mean, it's it's incredible. They won't just read the eyes; they will now read the body language because. If they're really that sharply in tune mentally, they will know the potential is to go down the line right. or across. So now they'll, the eyes are one read. That's one tell. Mm -hmm. The other one is body language. Because I, I, have to put my, setup I, have, I have to put my body in a certain shape right. to play a certain shot. So therefore, they immediately calculate what's wrong with this picture. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, that's how I said, the levels get better and better. And wow. as a spectator, when you see Nadal, when you see Federer, when you see Murray, when you see Djokovic, you are watching guys that are so good at every single oh, category. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and two quick points. The... Uh, the, even the best of the best, you're going to see faults, unforced errors. I mean, you know, they're not going to be able to hit it exactly the way they want it every single time. And the second point is uh, there, there's research that's shown the eyes cannot follow a pitched baseball, you know, that four-tenths of a second right. that it's traveling. So it's the same thing with a fast-moving tennis ball. I mean, they're not able to actually track the ball every little millimeter of its trajectory. I mean, right. they, there's enough intuitive physics, you know, the biomechanics that they've trained themselves for years to know where to be, where to, you know, react to a certain, you know, even sound of the ball coming off the reaction. There's another, that's, the a, that's a fabulous point, Professor, because now it becomes a sensual thing. You're looking and you're, he you're hearing and you're looking at eyes, you're looking at body shape, you're looking at noises and all sorts of different things. And all of a sudden, when the noise of the racket is very another sensual. tell, it's like, remember you said, uh, you're off again. It's very sensual. So, you, you know, that, that thud on a home run. Right. Where you just go, head up, this one's leaving the park. Yeah, that crack. Yeah, you know that. You know that the same with the tennis. And that's how, that's how high level these players are. It's fabulous. Yeah, well, it's a game of inches and grunting and balls. And gosh, it is very, very sensual. Um, we are going to take another break. If we didn't get, I think just by, mainly for Chuck's benefit, um, I'm going to shower. Uh, if we haven't got to your questions, I do apologize. We are limited in the time because once again, big thanks to everybody. We got so many questions in. Really we'll do our best to, to cover as many as possible. We are going to take that break. The good professor, Professor Eric Goff author of Gold Medal Physics, will be staying with us. So will you. I hope uh, that break now will be back very, very shortly where we'll touch on courts and surfaces. So if your question was in that category, stick around. You're up next. 
We're back, yes, playing with science, cosmic queries, the tennis special built by our own listeners. So we have a big thank out to every single one of you who threw your questions in. Hopefully we've pulled them out of the hat. So we've got the professor, Eric Goff, with us still. So we will have him unlock the answers in all of your questions. Mm -hmm. So, uh, right, courts, services and more. So, Chuck, next question, please. Yeah, this is Joe Gassior. Uh, from Facebook, and he's from Barrington, Illinois. Oh, a second from Barrington, Illinois. Yeah, number two. Yeah, yeah, Joe wants to know this. How do players slide on different surfaces? Ooh. Clay, grass, hard courts. Is there a different technique used, or is there just more force put into the slide to overcome a greater coefficient of friction between the shoe and the surface? Thanks. Also, too, uh, are, they, are they using different footwear for these different surfaces? I mean, that... Which, I, would sounds, say, I would say that yes, sounds, but that I'm going to go right. with the professor's answer. But go ahead, professor. Well, so grass is certainly the fastest surface. The the, mm. the grass is a little slicker. Uh, you get a little less uh, friction on the ball. The bounces aren't quite as high. Um, when you're seeing a match on grass, the players tend to be uh, using a lot more speed and power. The rallies don't last quite as long. Uh, if you're a big, powerful server, you're going to love grass. Um, the hard courts usually have some kind of synthetic or acrylic layer sitting on a asphalt or concrete base. Uh, those are kind of in the middle between uh, clay and grass. Clay is certainly the slowest. Uh, you have a lot of court friction on the ball that you get these high bounces and the players use a lot of top spin and, and sliding on clay. You have all the particulates down on the surface so the, the shoes are able to slide a lot better yeah. on the clay. Uh, although a facet of my new research that was just published is we're seeing a reason uh, we've now got a pretty good explanation for why you're seeing sliding more on hard courts which is come on then the drum roll drum roll new research uh this was this was work i did uh, a year spent at the university of sheffield so any of our uk listeners uh, check out matt curry at the university of sheffield yeah. and anyone in the u.s who's looking to do some sports science uh check me out here at lynchburg college and what we're doing right now is we're looking into uh shoe treads and what we found by studying uh some rubber with holes in it is if you make these little dimpled holes there's a critical area a critical ratio of the area of the holes to the total contact area and if you go past it, the static friction drops by more than 11% on a hard court. So what that means is if, you're, if you put your shoe down and it's not quite sliding, the static friction is what you feel. Once it starts to slide, we call that kinetic friction. But if you can reduce that static friction, you can initiate sliding much faster. So basically a like a, a, a race car tire. So you, you have different grades. So you go from slicks to medium to wet weather tires and as accordingly but it's interesting with the 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 holes in the rubber what size of holes are we talking about here because so if you can get something of order 25 percent of a contact area of the shoe to have kind of a dimple or a hold area you're going to get a reduction in this uh slide friction you know to initiate the slide quicker uh if you look at roger federer he uses a nike court zoom uh you, you'll see exaggerated and deeper cut herringbone on the outside of the shoe mm -hmm. um novak Djokovic, who's really one of the pros that 
makes a lot of use of sliding. Yeah, and but he's, a, he's an incredibly athletic player. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. he's got an Adidas Novak Pro named after him. Uh, you'll see these d- a deep grooved circular section on the outside of his shoe. Uh, Andy Murray, you know, uh, from from Gary's <laughs> neck of the woods. I mean, he's going to have a. Uh, well, he's left Adidas and gone to Under Armour, hasn't he's, he? He's got an Under Armour charged Ultimate, and you'll notice it's got like four cutout sections on the outside edge. So, again, the gaps are going to help him slide. Uh, even younger players like Diego Schwartzman uses a Fila Cage Delirium, and it's quite different from the that's other. That's actually shoe. a shoe, right? Because that's yeah, because <laughs> yeah. it actually sounds like a very dangerous dog. Yeah, the Fila Cage Delirium. It, yeah, it, very. Uh, it sounds slightly dog, cyborg. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting when you talked about holes in the soles of the shoe because Adidas made a shoe for soccer, but a a flat shoe, not a uh, studded or cleated shoe, back in the sixties, and it had sort of suction cups throughout the sole. And and, and you, when you sort of talked about holes, but you're not talking about that sort of thing. It's actually the opposite. Yeah, these are, I mean, we're talking about like dimples, uh, yeah. not dimples. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're talking about grooves or some kind of uh, depressions in, into the rubber, into the sole of the shoe. And the idea is is that it will start sliding if you have enough hole area to initiate this slide. Uh, you can go out and buy a Wilson Glide shoe, and it's got these two slide plates in each of the shoes, and you can... You know, kind of get practiced on sliding with that. Hmm. Um, but all of these shoes that the pros are using on the hard courts, the ones that are taking advantage of sliding, you're going to notice some uh, gaps in the tread that get a little wider than some of the traditional herringbone patterns. So it's really it's really shoe technology that's brought this about. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, ch- it's changing the game on hard courts wow. because sliding used to be really the purview of, of clay and, and s- to some extent on, on grass, too. But, I mean, really, clay was the, you know, the sliding surface. But once you start adding in something new like sliding on hard court, I mean, you're, you're changing the shots that the, the elite pr- are going to be able to reach. This now. will have been driven by the players because the players' style has said, look, I need, I can't have an aggressive tread on the sole of my shoe because it's impeding the style of game that I bring. So they'll have gone back to their manufacturer and said, can you construct something that allows me to do this? The only thing I'm thinking now is if you start to slide on a hard court, that sole better be fire retardant because you're going to get really, really hot shoes. And that's another thing, because all of a sudden, feet burn, and you will get shoot f- the destruction on your skin. I mean, from playing on hard surfaces as a soccer player, you will get a lot of friction, and that, gets, that energy gets transmitted up through the shoe into the foot. Okay, well, in that case, I'm all for it, because nothing would make me happier than to be at a professional tennis match and, and see, see somebody's... Fire. <laughs> that's right. See somebody's feet burst into flame? Oh, God. I'm... <laughs> You just uh, think that's why they, uh, they they also swap shoes out sometimes. Yeah, too. yeah. It's a whole new meaning to the, this players on fire. Hot foot, baby. Yeah. All right. Okay. So now Julian Jans from Facebook wants to know this: If we make a tennis field with moon dust, oh. will it have the effect uh, that will it have the effect than Roland Garros tennis field? Uh, will the bounce be better or worse? compared to other surfaces. 
Uh, what's a Roland Garros tennis field? Roland Garros was a famous French tennis player, and Roland Garros is the number one tennis court and complex in France, in Paris, and it is where the French Open is It's where the French Open is. Okay. And so, uh, if you made it out of moon dust, will you get the same consistency as a clay court? Well, I think someone's going to sort of come in late at night and steal it because we know how valuable moon dust is. But uh, there's only one person to answer that. Professor, moon dust, tennis court, where do we go from there? The the majority of moon dust is is a silicon dioxide glass and it's come about from a bunch of these meteorite collisions with the surface of the moon but it's actually pretty nasty stuff it's uh it's very abrasive um some of the astronauts complained about it starting to get through their suits um it also sticks to stuff it'll stick to the uh the balls you're playing with the shoes the clothes and the players wouldn't really want to breathe it in. It's got some iron in it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's not not something you'd want to be playing tennis on. Okay. So, so uh, it's a punishment. It's, so yeah, you, that, so if, right. you've, if, if you're being punished, you've been sent to the moon dust court to play tennis. Sure, yeah. yeah. And if you're on the moon and... You know, the gravitational pull is about a sixth what it is here. You're going to get some pretty long shots. You're going to need a big court, too. Yeah. Oh, Professor, good segue. Well done, sir. Joe McKillop on Facebook. He's tied straight into this. Right. What's the biggest thing in the solar system from which a ball hit by the best tennis pro could achieve escape velocity? Love the show, Joe. Thank you so much, and we love your question, yeah, Professor. But, but now, what's he mean by what's the biggest thing? We don't know who, who he or Be, she. Uh, well, yeah, it's well true. I, so. I think I can, I can I can answer that. So, you know, if you're going to escape Earth, I mean, not even accounting for air resistance. I mean, just to get off the gravitational tug of the Earth, you're going to need about a 25,000 mile per hour launch. Uh, you're going to need something a little more just to get past the the atmosphere. So the idea is, can you find something small enough? in the solar system that you could hit a you know nice strong tennis serve and it could actually leave the object without ever coming back Mm -hmm. and i you know had to check uh what the world record is on a tennis serve and it's australia's sam growth uh this is 163.4 miles an hour in 2012 wow Say that again. That's incredible. 163 miles per hour on a tennis serve? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so let, let's just say we're not quite at that point. We're going to hit you know 150 miles an hour. Uh, the escape speed actually sk- kind of squales, or sorry, scales with the square root of the mass of the object divided by its radius. So you need to find something out there that... Uh, is going to fit what you need. The Earth is about 28,000 times. That ratio is about 28,000 times too big. Mm-hmm. So I actually found a moon of Saturn, Hyperion, that'll do the trick. If you serve a, a tennis ball 150 miles an hour, it will escape Hyperion. You know, Hyperion's one of these little chaotic, tumbling moons of Saturn that mm-hmm. uh, it's only a couple hundred miles wide in one direction, maybe 120-some-odd miles in another direction. Um, and you can actually get the ball to leave that little moon of Saturn. So really, the, the, the answer is the smallest thing in the solar system where you can achieve escape velocity mm. is Hyperion. So let's Something pack like our bags that. and head yeah. for the Hyperion Country Club. There you go. Racket exactly. and t- oh Racket and Buzz Club. It. We've yes. lost another ball again. Mm. Well, you might be able to find Damn it. Damn that, that escape velocity. Saturn will hold it. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, all of a sudden you'll find a whole lot of tennis balls right. in orbit around right. Saturn. Another lovely day here at the Hyperion Tennis Club mm. where we're out of balls because we keep losing them to escape velocity. Oh, well. Anyway. We'll have to put the membership up. <laughs> all right, let's move on. All right, um, next question. That was actually a very fascinating question, yeah, thank Joe. You, thank Joe you, Joe McKillop. So much. Yes. Uh, this is Mr. G, uh, and he comes to us through Twitter uh, at Diatonic Nerd, and he wants to know this. If we put players into suits on a court inside of a vacuum dome, what happens to the flight dynamics of the ball? Next-gen tennis, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Mr. G, you're so terribly clever. Um, what? That's a, actually a really fun little thought experiment. Let's get some guys into uh, into spacesuits. Let's put them in a vacuum, um, and then um, let's play some tennis. What are we going to look at? What kind of game are we looking at at that point? Uh, you know, we we do know now that from our first segment that there's a lot of uh, dynamics that we'll lose when it comes to the fuzziness of the ball. Mm. But uh, what are we looking at, Professor? Well, you're also going to lose sound because you're not going to have sound propagating in a vacuum. Ah, um, oh, man. So that means I can't listen to all those wonderful grunts of people birthing pineapples. Unless you've got like a, you know, uh, a microphone inside the helmet and, and, you know, speakers or something in there that you can hear the other player. Well, we'll bring in the sound effects. We'll, yeah. we'll make it work. Uh, so air resistance is obviously gone. So the the balls are going to be moving a lot faster. Um, you're not going to be able to get any effect from spin. Yes. Um, you're not going to have any air to, to whip around that ball and have that nice Magnus effect help curve the ball. So forget all those nice uh, curves on your shots. <laughs> so uh, the, the result will be a really boring game of tennis is basically what we're saying here. It's, I mean, if you could serve 150 miles an hour, I mean, the drag force is like nine times the weight of the ball. I mean, it's a huge effect on the ball. So uh, you take out the air. I mean, it's a much, much different game. Do you think vacuum dome tennis is going to catch on? Well, think about the ball moving a lot faster and your ability to get to it wearing a big suit. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, it's a really boring game of tennis. You you serve, uh, basically everybody just holds serve. You serve, and the other person watches the ball go by. That's that's, that's the way the game hit, is played. Walk, hit, hit, walk, walk, hit, walk, walk, hit, walk, walk, hit, walk, hit, walk. Yeah. Okay. okay, all right. Time for one more question. Just one more. Just the one more. Kevin Moynihan, go on then, Chuck. Kevin Moynihan wants to know this. Coming to us from Facebook, and you have to answer this, Professor. Scientifically. Okay. Scientifically. Kevin says this. How come I can't stop laughing at that picture of Trump playing tennis? <laughs> um, probably because it's as funny as a picture of Trump playing president. <laughs> oh, I didn't need two days to come up with that conclusion, and I live an hour from Charlottesville. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. You were, I, I got to tell you, kudos. That was, that was excellent, my friend. Professor's got... Professor's got the answers, as proven once again. Oh, man. Professor Eric Goff, the author of Gold Medal Physics, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for bringing us the the answers to so many of our listeners' questions. Thank you to our listeners. This show does not exist without you, and your questions have been brilliant, and hopefully the answers have been fulfilling. Chuck. What another great show. That's all I can say. Yeah. A lot of fun. Professor, thank you. It's mm. always informative and entertaining when you are on. 
And yeah, um, glad to be on. Yeah, man. Have fun. I can't wait to uh, hook up with you at the Hyperion uh, Tennis Club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's gonna be a long, long, long trip to get there. I was gonna say, yeah, that's 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 quite a ways, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah it's just not quite around the corner. Right, that's it for today's show. Hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you tune into playing with science in the future. We do look forward to your company. Until then, bye bye. <laughs>